you are listening to This Book I Read, a podcast from Beyond Cataclysm. Welcome to This Book I Read, a podcast from Beyond Cataclysm, where we talk to authors about a book that has stuck with them through the years, for good reasons and sometimes bad ones. My name is Chris. He, him, also known as C.M. Lowry. I like to... I like to read and write sci-fi, and I recently released a book of flash fiction called The Die Decides. Find out more about me at allaboutchris.org, on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram as at cmlowryauthor. But we are not here to talk about me. This is the moment we meant we... This is the moment we welcome cultural gaming legend James Wallace to the show, author of Everybody Wins, Four Decades of the Greatest Games Ever Made. He used to run the largest role-play game company in the UK, written 19 books and lots of other things that I forgot from our beginning chat. Hello, James. Hello, Chris. It's good to be here. Tell us more about yourself. Oh, God. Um, I'm a, a, a games person, I suppose. I've kind of worn almost every hat there is to wear within games. I've designed games. I've published games. I've commissioned games. I've edited games. I've taught games design at a number of universities. Um, I run a series of masterclasses called the Games Design Masterclass to teach people board game design. Um, I seem to have become a games historian by accident. Uh, Everybody Wins is my second book on the history of games after a thing called... uh, I'm blanking on the title now. This is embarrassing. (laughs) Uh, It's not a good title. We didn't choose the title. Um, It's called... No, it's gone. Um, It's literally that that unmemorable. Give, give me a second or two. It's generally, this is embarrassing. Okay. It's called Board Games in a Hundred Moves. I, I co-wrote it with Sir Ian Livingston, the legend who co-founded mm. Games Workshop and created the Fighting Fantasy solo game books and was the, the godfather of the whole Tomb Raider Lara Croft franchise, wearing his, his game designer hat. Um, so, yes, that more recently I seem to be a kind of a games cultural historian, which is not kind of where i expected to be but so your what was your first book that you wrote oh well my first book was a role-playing game supplement my first novel my first two novels were sonic the hedgehog tie-ins official ones um done for virgin publishing under the pseudonym martin adams uh, with I, a couple of friends a little, with- a, a little bit of me really wants to dive deeply into <laughs> discovering the back the real, like, the emotional backstory of Sonic there. Well, uh, this was the uh, really the early days of Sonic. This was 1993. Sonic 2 had just come out. So there wasn't any. We were just... We had the, the Mega Drive 2D platform games. We had some very flimsy background from Sega itself. 
and and we were kind of let rip and and we had fun except we had to deliver four books in four months so i wow. wrote two uh, a chap called carl Sargent wrote two and a mutual friend called mark gascoigne edited them all for consistency and style and putting in more jokes and we <laughs> decided on the uh, pseudonym martin adams because we figured if we had martin ames we'd probably get sued but martin adams is an a surname so it puts you right at the top of the publishers list alphabetically um and we threw them out there or virgin publishing threw them out there and they kind of disappeared for about 25 years and literally i think a year two years ago i discovered a podcast with with a patreon was for its patreon backers was reading through sonic in the fourth dimension my first sonic novel chapter by chapter and that's amazing analyzing it and this thing's going for collector prices now it's insane I, I mean, the thing is, we all know famously that the uh, the Sonic, uh, you know, the Sonic fan fan base is, is far bigger than Star Wars. So th- that <laughs> canon that you laid down very early and like, that's, you know, the idea of changing that or messing that would be very upsetting. Well, this, Sonic didn't talk in the days when we started writing this. So we were kind of dis- coming up with Sonic's voice. How does he speak? What sort of slang does he use? And and it's interesting. I could go into the differences between British Sonic fandom and American Sonic fandom, but yeah, we I, and the guys behind Sonic the Comic essentially laid down what a generation of Sonic fans thought Sonic was like. I mean, it is the thing is like I, I'm a bit. I only really dropped it in as a bit of a joke because you mentioned <laughs> that was your first novel. But I don't know, like as in as someone who's just grown up, but like, my whole life Sonic's just existed, and like there's been Sonic TV shows, there's been the recent films, and mm. like. Being in in the room, so to speak, on whatever online room we're in, with the person who actually kind of, you know, also I think the bit that's daunting to me is the way you just wrote a whole novel in like two novels in like two months or whatever. Um, yeah, but, uh, it you was, know, it was you needed it was some blasting through it, it. I have to say, you needed someone else to write the jokes. So you know, <laughs> I write my own jokes. At least I can. That's the only flimsy thing I can hold on I, to there. I will say, Mark anyway, wrote more jokes. I did put some jokes. Oh, in. there were some. But, yeah. Anyway, James, um, good as Sonic is, why are you here? Well, there's this book I read. Fantastic. So what book have you read? It's it's Georges Perec's A Void, or at least in English it's A Void. In French it's La Disparation, his, his great novel from 1960... Nine, most famous for not having the letter E in it. But that's really, I mean, that's literally half the story because not only did he write a book without the letter E, because he was a member of, of Ulipo, the, the French, the European experimental writing group of the 1960s, who set each other constraints or set themselves constraints and challenges for how to write fiction. Because as you know, their basic premise was, any idiot can write a book. Many idiots do. Let's make it more interesting by making it harder for ourselves. So they would do fun experiments like poems that read for the eye, but do not read when do not rhyme when you read them out loud, um, wow. which are really interesting. Or a murder mystery in which the first thing you've got to work out is who was murdered, uh, and then you solve the murder mystery. Um, uh, Raymond Quano, who f- was one of the founders of the group, he did one of the foundational texts is a thing called Somi Milliard de Poèmes. I apologise for my accent. A uh, hundred billion poems. <coughs> Excuse me. 
um, in which he's basically, he writes a number of sonnets and then he pl- does, essentially, you remember those head body legs books from when you were a kid and you could flip yeah. between them. He does that with sonnets. So you can combine any line from the sonnet with any other lines from the sonnet for a hundred billion combinations. Um, he we, also, we, we, uh, beyond cataclysm, we actually sell a, um, we sell a rather an amazing little, it's just a little zine, um, made by Sea Light Studios. Uh, but it's a, it's, a. It's a haiku a RPG oh. uh, scene, and uh, but it does the same thing where mm. the first line, the middle line, and the last line. But you can use it to generate locations, characters, weapons, and it's actually yeah, it's actually it, I think haikus because they're so kind of brief and like leave a lot to the imagination. Yes, and really, really works. I actually I have a book of, of haikus that does exactly the same thing in in my study, um, but I think there's only like five thousand combinations of those, as you say, because it's only it's three lines. But so yeah, not a hundred billion. Not a hundred billion, sadly not. Um, so other people in in uh, Italo Calvino was a member of Ulipo. Marcel Duchamp was a member of Ulipo. Um, I don't think he wrote very much for them, but uh, this was after people think of Duchamp as the great artist, but actually he'd given up art really quite early in his career to become a professional chess player. Um, Amazing. I love that as a piece of trivia. He wasn't actually very good at chess, but he was obsessed by it. Um, but so it's this group of intensely creative people, some of them artists, some of them writers, some of them scientists and mathematicians. Perrick was very much a writer. Um, and his best known work, the one he won the pre-concours for, is Life a User's Manual, which is based on the knight's game in chess. It's set in a French, in a boarding house, an eight-story boarding house with eight rooms on each floor. So imagine that as a chessboard. And then he, each yeah. chapter, he describes one of the rooms. But the order in which he describes them is the knight's game, which is a puzzle oh. in which is it possible to move a knight across a chessboard visiting each square only once. And that's You're never going to know it's the knight, knight's game unless you've worked out that the boarding house is a chessboard and done all of that. But it made the writing of it more... The, he embraced the constraints and did fascinating things with them. So obviously yeah. his... his did, cons- it, did, it, did, it jump, did it jump through time as well? As no, it it's like, the whole thing is, is essentially... It's a, a snapshot. It, he freezes time and describes exactly what is in each room, whether it's people or people who have just gone out or people who have just come in. It is an extraordinary book. Um, it's vivid and funny and moving and and puzzling. And he is a master of the last line sucker punch. Um, he, you know, he'll build up to something and then the last line of the book, pow, gets you between the eyes. Uh, w or the, the memory of childhood, which is... is I, I, I haven't read it recently enough to really describe it, but it's partly a description of an, an idealised island society, which is very much a sporting culture, and partly a memory of essentially being shuffled between relatives, I think, during the Second World War, as a Jewish child whose parents have been taken away. And that's as much as I'm going to describe it, because I think anything more than that potentially spoils it. But again, the final line of the book is like, oh, oh, it, wow, yeah. that's a, um, that's amazing. I, yeah. I should I, actually my uh, my grandma came over on the Kinder Transport. Oh wow! Uh, and spent her she's still she's still alive as well. Um, mm. And she uh, she spent a, yeah spent a lot of her teenage years being shuffled around, uh, being uh, without her parents. So that yeah. would uh, probably one I should probably one I should hunt out. Yes.
to avoid. Back to, back to avoid, yeah. It's, so it's written without the letter E, but the entire story is set in a world in which something ubiquitous but unnameable has suddenly mysteriously vanished away and nobody can name it. And it is, of course, the letter E. So the whole plot is about a world in which the letter E has disappeared. And then obviously they can't say the letter... They can't say the letter E, so none of their names. The, char- the central character's name is Anton Vowell, V-O-W-L. There's the big clue. You know, if you hadn't worked it out from the back cover or everything you were ever going to read about the book, where literally the first I mean, line I, is, I, I love the, the fact that the, that the author is called Georges Perec, which has four <laughs> E's in it, which yeah. is a, a lot of E's for a name. Yes, um, he did. I mean, as a follow up to this, just, you know, to, just showing off, he did, um, I'm going to blank on it, he did a short story called Les Revenants in French, which was tr- also translated into English as the Exeter text, Jewel's Secrets Sex, in which, as you can guess, the only vowel is the letter E. And uh, that's extraordinary. How so he- hang on. So, so both of these books, mm. have, so one's been written without the letter E and one's yeah. been written with the letter E, and then they've been translated from French into, into, into English, English with the same constraint. Wow. Yeah. That's a real, that's a, like, translation is always a challenge, isn't it? Like, uh, it's uh, like always, there's been a big thing recently about um, Always Quiet on the Western Front. Mm. Um, and like, even how that, that title should be different and things like that. But um, yeah, that's, that's a real weight to translate that, isn't it? Yeah. And, and my hat is off. And Gilbert Adair, is, uh, who was a novelist in his own right, um, translated A Void. I can't remember who translated the Exeter text. But it's hard to read the Exeter text, actually, because you just, even if you're just reading it to yourself, you're not reading it out loud. That mental sound of the e, the e vowel sound just hammering away like a woodpecker in your head. You can only take so much of it. How it was to write yeah. it or translate it, I have no idea. Um, <laughs> it, it, could you, uh, do you have a, a sample of, I, uh, I do. of Void that well, you can I mean, read to us? It's interesting style-wise. I thought about kind of going back to the start, but it's for me the start is not the good bit because there's a sense that Perek is kind of, or even the translator, is trying this out, trying out this style, and is working out the constraints and how it fits together. But by the time you get halfway through, he's nailed it. He knows exactly what he's doing, and he decides to show off. So he has an entire sequence where the characters go to a library, and they pull down books off the shelves... And um, they read bits of well-known works of literature out to each other. They read William Shakespeare's living or not living soliloquy from Hamlet, except they don't he doesn't say Hamlet, obviously, because he can't. Um, so they don't just they don't just miss the letters out. So like so, no, no, no. so, li- so, so book in French is livre, isn't it? Yes. So they then just can't use the word book they to describe. They can't use the word books. book as, as such. Yeah, and he doesn't cheat. In the Exeter text, he, he cheats, he uses apostrophes and things like that. In this, no, it's written straight. Um, and there are two which are absolutely brilliant, uh, two poems that he quotes. There is, um, I'll let you choose, Ozymandias by PBS or um, Blackbird by Arthur Gordon Pym. Let's go Blackbird. Let's go Blackbird. Okay, I'll give you the first verse and then one of the subsequent verses. If, and if you haven't worked out what it is, you'll get it pretty quickly. "'Twas upon a midnight tristful, I sat poring, wan and wistful, through many a quaint and curious listful of my consort slain. I sat nodding, 
almost napping, till I caught a sound of tapping, as of spirits softly rapping, rapping at my door in vain. "'Tis a visitor,' I murmured, tapping at my door in vain, tapping soft as falling rain. And he goes to the door and he lets the visitor in, and it is a blackbird. Yeah. And he has a he talks to the blackbird, and uh, the blackbird, well... So this is probably about the 10th verse or so. Now my room was growing fragrant, its aroma almost flagrant, as, of, as from spirits wasping, wafting vagrant through my dolorous domain. Good for naught, I said. God sought you. From Plutonian strands God brought you. And I know not why God taught you all about my unjoined chain. All about that linking symbol missing from my unjoined chain. Quoth that blackbird. Not again. Wow. That's, so just... I'm like, like even there, like as in I was I was like, hang on, he's cheated there. He's used unjoined. unjoined and then the next line says, all about that linking symbol missing from my unjoined chain. Yes. There as well. That one Brilliant. he does and... use apostrophes in in for unjoined. Um, but but then within... but then there's also kind of a, a mention of the fact that that has happened yes. in that second yes. line he, there. He's, he changes the poem into, he changes the sense from Poe's original into it being about the missing vowel. About, you know, can the blackbird help him in his search for the, the, missing, uh, the missing vowel? It's so, so self-referential. Um, I, I actually think, because it's such a well-known uh, poem, people will know it's The, the Raven by uh, Edgar Allan Poe. I think what, but what, what I liked about Blackbird is, is, is even the title has to change, doesn't yes. it? Yes. Like, uh, yeah, everything. Um, so it's, I mean, it's masterful. The right, I don't know which works are in the French original. I should find out. My French is not good enough to appreciate it. But just as a piece of trans. So have you have you read have you read it in French? I have not read it in French. My, you know, I I wish I could, um, but sadly I have you know a school an English schoolboy education in the French language. Um, I, I actually I, I mean it's a bit out of vogue now, but I bought a, I bought the first Harry Potter book in French when I was um, back when I was I don't know about eighteen, thinking oh this would. Reading through this would be a good way to pick up my, uh, you know, up, up my French game to discover that schoolboy French does not let you read a uh, even a really quite accessible book. Yes, why like. a fiction? Yeah, yes. Sadly, it's. I mean, I wish I could appreciate the the Europeans in their native languages, um, but the translations, for the most part, are so good that uh, that you don't have to. What's your what's your favourite thing about the book? It's I think it's it's something that I try to carry over into my into my games design or some of my games design. What Perrick is doing is he is taking one of the fundamental building blocks of all writing, particularly fiction, and he is removing it from the game, and he's you know from the game of writing, and seeing what he can do without it and making it about that. And as a games designer, I love looking at games and going, okay, what is the fundamental thing that holds this up? 
Will it survive without it? Could you do a first-person shooter game without guns? Um, I, I did a talk once in which I had the, the, the logo of the, the well-known shooter Quake, and I took the E out of it, and it's quack. It's not as simple as taking E out of a first-person shooter, but taking guns out of a first-person shooter, or taking a game like Dungeons & Dragons and doing it without the combat system, without the swords, without the killing monsters and nicking their stuff, which is, or at least used to be, the heart of the game. Well, I mean, I mean it, it reminds me, if you think of, a, I don't know if you've read a Into the Odd by Chris McDowell, um, but the decision he made there was, what if you don't have to roll to hit? Um, mm. like I, think he, I think he took almost all of the dice rolling out of combat, like as in, and, made, and managed to like, and, and didn't, didn't completely destroy the game. But what mm. he what he aims to do is he aims to pare back games right to the bare minimum and then add one thing back in. You know, take it just beyond fun. And then when you bring that one thing back in and you build everything around that. Um, I, and for more discussions of, of role-play games, check out What is Roleplay, our other podcast. Yeah. yeah. It's, I, I met Chris, actually, at uh, Tabletop Gaming Live in Manchester uh, at the end of last year, and we discovered that I sold him his first role-playing game at wow. Games Day sometime in the late 90s, where I was running the Hogshead Publishing Stall because we did Warhammer Fantasy Roleplay under licence from Games Workshop. And he was, you know, a callow youth with 20 quid in his hand. And and we described, he'd never come across role-playing games, and we described what this thing was, and he went, wow, that sounds great. And, uh, and thus was a career born um i really ought to read some of his games and that i mean that sounds fascinating what his his approach to design there but yes the the whole idea of working out what the foundations of a game are and seeing how many of those you can chisel away without it falling over um i'm best known for a storytelling game called the extraordinary adventures of baron munchausen which is sort of a role-playing game but it's a role-playing game in which you don't have adventures you just tell stories of your adventures to each other so the whole of the game it's like it's a, a level on top you're bragging about these extraordinary adventures you've had and other people can interrupt and and go but you said you were in um, vienna in the spring it's well known vienna closes for spring cleaning how on earth did you get access to the city and you can then there's a little mechanic and you can either build these things you can accept the interruption build that into your story or you can reject it uh, but rejecting it costs you money whereas um building it taking accepting it you you get a coin um i mean I, I'm, I'm keen for us to avoid getting too uh yeah. too far into uh into games just because because that's tend yeah. to be i mean but the thing is what's so wonderful about games is is narrative which is what yes, this and, and playing is with stories about. is that fundamental yeah. role-playing uh, games are playing with stories munchausen is specifically playing about the, playing with stories and and, and so there is another game, you know, just to mention more games. Uh, um, have you, I don't know if you've come across Every, Everyone is John. Oh, um, Everyone is John. It's amazing. Yeah. Um, but that's so that's a game where you play. Uh, so you play somebody with, I, I think, you know, it maybe isn't the most politically correct in terms of you play someone with a madness, basically. Mm. But you're all playing the same character um, who is who is suffering from a completely different personality. Um, and there's a lot of people that talk about schizophrenia as being split personality, which is completely not true and something I tend to tend to jump on when I hear uh, mentioned with the uh, the doctor hat on. Uh, but, uh, but what it does is you all have a completely ludicrous different goal. You know, one of you, your aim is to start fires. The other one is to build a scale model of the Eiffel Tower, you know, and the other one is to, you know, eat as much ice cream as you can. Um, and you have that, there's that same mechanic of kind of, bidding to see mm. do 
do you do you lose your narrative and somebody else takes over the uh, the narrative or do you uh, do you stick with it and in the same way as in the same way as um avoid the yeah. fun there is that limitation isn't it mm. Yes, the constraints. Um, and it's something, again, that uh, that I use in fiction, setting myself constraints and working out how I'm going to get around them. Um, and, you know, it's Sonic the Hedgehog novels and the kind of fiction that uh, a lot of the fiction I've written, I've written Warhammer novels as well, might not stack up as great literature. But as kind of serving an apprenticeship for writing book-length fiction and setting oneself challenges and going, okay, can I do... In, within a Warhammer novel, can I do a chapter in which the hero does nothing but lie naked in freezing mud in the middle of a forest all night, feeling sorry for himself? Yep. Does it work? Well, I'll let the reader be the judge of that. <laughs> I think it works. It's, certainly, I mean, I it's not it's... what people expect in a Warhammer novel. I mean, if you ask me, what would I rather write? You know, something like a very worthy kind of historical novel, like I'm thinking like uh, Pillars of the Earth or something mm. like that. Like uh, some, Or would I rather be the person setting the law for Sonic? <laughs> I, I mean, I just think that, and like that, that challenge of having to do that quickly in a way that's accessible and has enough jokes and things like that, I, I think that's a there is a joy in that all its own, isn't there? Mm. Oh, completely. And I've done a lot of stuff with with licensed properties, working within other people's universes to their rules, has its own pleasures, knowing the boundaries that you can't go over, and yet having to accept that, and yet still trying to craft stories that are interesting and self-contained and go places that nowhere else, no one else has been before, is hugely fun and hugely creative reward creatively rewarding. I mean, my my first. I mean, uh, listeners to the show obviously know we run a shop, and so we do mention things that we sell <laughs> in the shop. Um, and uh, we hope to have uh, Baron Munchausen uh, in there soon. Uh, the my first book, uh, The Die Decides. What was fun about that is it's thirty three stories chosen by rolling a dice. So I got given three hundred words on I don't know cookery and uh, like green spaces. And then actually, what was really nice is I didn't have to think. Mm -hmm. as in as in i just had i've got 300 words and this is what i'm writing on go you know like as in at that that limitation can almost not be a limitation it can be quite freeing sometimes mm. oh completely yes it, and jumping off points that you would never have come up with on your own i, I do have a question about avoid though sure how is it to read how much does it ask of the reader it's it settles down quite quickly and you're you are aware that it's playing this game of of no ease because of course that's what the story is about um and the story itself is not great let's be honest it's it's there to serve a purpose but it cracks along and when it's clever it is breathtakingly clever um it's you know astonishingly smart and 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 funny um it's I, I've, I, I've only read it once, but I do pull it off the shelf at regular intervals, probably two or three times a year, and flip through it and just look mm. at bits and go, wow, this is, this is not just, it's not simply let's write a book without the letter E. There is so much that informs the structure, it informs the characters, it informs the plot, and it informs the showy-offy bits as well. And it's it's a delight. It's I think should you find it in a secondhand shop, it is absolutely worth five quid of your money for the library section because it's a yeah. it's a virtuoso display of of writing within constraints. 
I mean, it does. It does sound. Uh, it does sound fascinating. I think um, the uh, when when you when you talk about like it takes a while to get your head into it, and it sounds yeah. like maybe the, uh, the I can't remember what the the Exeter novel was. The, yes, the Exeter again. text. That that is a short story. It's not not a novel. But, but again, God. when you talked about that kind of yeah, when you talked about that wearing on you mm. um, a little bit, it, it reminds me a little bit actually of um, the first time I read Train Spotting. Uh, I remember <sighs> the. Uh, Irvin Welsh's I don't know if you've if you've read it but it's Beats. in really really strong Scottish kind of like like slang dialect and the first chapter you read you've just got absolutely no idea what anyone is saying mm. but then actually you realize after about like three chapters in your head gets in that space like because it is you know it is still it is still a a, a strand of English isn't it you know and so actually yes. you your, your brain can get forced into that box and um I found it really amazing that by the end of the book, I just didn't even notice it was in dialect, which is mad, really, because I couldn't read the first two chapters. Um, but it sounds similar in a way here where it may be a bit jarring at first and then and then you kind of sink into it. Yes, the other famous example of that is is Russell Hoban's Ridley Walker, which is a post-apocalypse novel set in Kent, but again, written in this fierce dialect that takes a chapter or two to even start parsing. Oh, and of course, Clockwork Orange which is written in this in a future dialect. And I'm going to go left field here because, as, as I said, I love experimental literature. Ben Marcus's Age of Wire and String, which all the way through is redefining its own vocabulary as, no. it, as it goes. It's, it's insane. Um, very, very difficult to read on a number of levels. Uh, not least <laughs> the first word it redefines is rape. It's Ooh, okay, yeah, yeah. It's but within it, it, it this it is it is a a. I don't even know what genre it might fit into. This is not attempting to be a realistic novel at all. It's just it's it's an exercise in vocabulary more than anything else. Um, and yes, but those novels that redefine their own terms as they go and force you to to fit in and to understand their world through their eyes. Um, yeah, Red, read, uh, Redshift by Alan Garner as well. Garner, better known for The Weird Stone of Brisingerman and uh, Elidor, Elidor uh, and yeah. The Owl Service. But Redshift is told entirely in dialogue and he never identifies who is speaking. You have to work it out from the lines of dialogue. Um, mm. And that's a tough book. <laughs> I did not get on. Yeah, I, I didn't gonna, get on with that one. I, I was going to say that does... There is a there is that thing, isn't there? Of some, you know, ultimately, I read a lot of just pulpy sci-fi because it doesn't demand much of me. You know, no, like, as nothing in wrong with that. It's that it, but it's that thing you said. There's that valid thing for having on your bookshelf the kind of the like the amazing works that they're more like a piece of art that you look at rather than something mm. you consume in the. Have you? Uh, we had uh, Alan Stroud uh, on the show from the British Sci-Fi Association. Ah. Um, um, who uh, was talking about House of Leaves. I don't know if you've encountered that. I have uh, had a copy of House of Leaves on my shelf for about 25 years, and I have never dared start it. Uh, one day I will. <laughs> one day I will. But yes, well, that's well, very much but, I mean, in my ballpark. But for some reason, I've, I've never gone to it. I think partly because the other one that people talked about and came out, I think, roughly simultaneously. David Foster Wallace's Infinite Jest came out about the same time. This massive doorstopper of a novel that people going, oh, my Lord, it will change your life. And I just I found it interminable. And I have a personal thing that I don't not finish books. 
I, I finish books if I possibly can. I gave up on Infinite Jest um, I, about I halfway have, through because I've, it was boring. I was bored by it. I've not finished two books. I can't remember what one of them was, but the other one was called Grandpa with Snails that I read when I was about nine. <laughs> that. And I remember going downstairs to my parents and saying, I, and like, I think I was crying. Ooh. And I was like, I can't finish this book because it's bad, mummy. It's, it's not, it, it doesn't, like, and I, I, I didn't have the vocabulary to say, mm. you know, it just wasn't written well. You yeah. Know? But I, as, as a nine-year-old, it was written so bad. Apologies if the author of Grandad with Snails is listening now. What I realise now, it was actually a work of tremendous experimental fiction that I just wasn't ready to. <laughs> I have to look that up now. Grandad with Snails. I've never heard of that. <laughs> Um, I think it was like a kid's book. I'm sure it's well out of print now. Um, I hope it is. It should be. Um, it's the, the first entries are Amazon second-hand copies and the Oxfam shop. So I'm not sure it's well recovered. We've already... Um, we've already covered any other recommendations, really. Is, mm. it, is there anything else that people should should read if they like this one um i would say if you if you like this one or if you like the sound of this one the kind of thing that's most similar to it in the the ulipo oeuvre isn't another peric book it's if on a winter's night a traveler by italo calvino which i almost chose which is an extraordinary work of nested fiction it literally begins you are about to start reading If on a Winter's Night a Traveller, the new novel by Italo Calvino. That is the first line. And then uh, you, and it, then you work through that chapter, and then chapter two is the first chapter of If on a Winter's Night a Traveller. And it's, as I recall, it's uh, uh, you're on a railway platform and it's snowing and, you know, it's some Eastern European country and something. And you, oh, it's great scene setting and stuff. And then you discover, no, the book's been misbound. That's not the first chapter at all. So you must take your book back to the... This is you, the character within the book, not you, the reader. Yeah. You must take the book back to the book and you get another copy and that's also... And you meet, uh, you meet a girl who's in the same predicament and it just, it snowballs in this amazing nest upon nest of fiction. And it's, it's glorious and funny and silly and poignant and clever and witty. I just love it. Um, and it, it's much more readable, I would say, than uh, Avoid, but um, has a lot of the same qualities. And again, the, the constraints are, you know, become apparent as as you're reading it. But just this this snowballing act of imagination, um, it's it's a riot, um, which makes it sound like a humor book. It's not a humor book. It is not funny in the conventional sense. But if you like playful fiction, you will absolutely love it. That, I mean, that did immediately, even as you were describing it, that just that just drew me in a little, maybe a little bit more than uh, Avoid did. Um, I do I do like that nested thing. I, I recently read um, uh, Ocean of Stars by John Dodd, uh, which uh, does it does a bit of time travel. Time travel is oh. always always fun. But, oh, yes. um, what I mean, spoilers. Don't listen about this bit if you're about to read this book. But um, but what he does, which is brilliant, is there's this character in it and then the, the, who encounters another character. And then after the split, you realise they're both the same character, oh. like separated by 40 years. And at that point, it then te it then jumps between telling the story of each of the characters separately mm -hmm. as they go on the path that then eventually lead them back to each other, which, yeah, was cool. It was uh, I, I, I enjoyed that. I, I was lost when it first happened. Yeah. 
That sounds fantastic. I'll have to hunt that one out. I've just looked at Grandad with snails, and that front cover is the same front cover, and that hurts. I've, I tell you what, Goodreads, it's got three stars. There we go. Um, that's that's a pretty poor rating on Goodreads. Yeah, um, it's. Um, I think it's five global ratings on on Amazon. Some of whom love it, and the one the uh, top review from the UK is three stars. Nice. Yeah. Um, brilliant. Fantastic. Okay. Well. I think that's probably it. I think we've we've probably talked enough about Avoid. I, I definitely uh, your so tell us about your other podcast, Ludo Narrative Dissonance. Ludo Narrative Dissidence, not dissonance. Dissidence. It's, it's, ah, okay. It's um it's a role playing game podcast in which myself, Ross Payton, and Craig Stolze, all of us role playing game designers, each episode we take one reasonably well-known game and we just do a deep dive on it we take it apart from a design perspective we talk about what it does how it does it how people play it why they play it that way looking at where it's come from what's influenced its design how influential it's been all the rest of, of that um usually each one's 80 or 90 minutes and we've done we haven't done DD and we probably never will because it's simply too big and there's too much of it but we have done things like call of cthulhu which people may well know uh we've done ars magica we've got pendragon coming up and we've done smaller smaller games as well because you mentioned i am john um season earlier end of season one we did bluebeard's bride which mm. does the same thing. All the players are playing the same character, who is Bluebeard's bride within the, the folktale, exploring the house of Bluebeard, the murderer, although you don't know it's the murderer, and finding horrible, horrible things within the, the house. And it's this is not a silly game. This is an emotionally fraught, tense game about the perils of being a woman basically and it's it's difficult you know as as a man it's kind of eye opening but it's the same it's the type of game that i don't think a man should ever run because the man does not have that learn you know does not understand what the game's core basis is really because it, it's inviting us to experience that universe not inviting us to describe it to other people it is an extraordinary and i have to say beautiful piece of work the book is an astonishing piece of work it's just gorgeous but it that, takes that, the same idea as i am john and completely flips it on its head in a really really interesting way it's picked up a i believe a bunch of awards deservedly so that's that sounds good and i think uh, i think I think the only thing that intrigues me about your podcast. So I've been I've been recording podcasts for a number of years now, mm-hmm. um, and I think you're the first I, you're the first guest who I just think I could have just said go, and then I could have not said anything for about sixty. I reckon more. I reckon ninety minutes. Like, uh, so how you managed to have two co-hosts? On there? I'm like, the one who speaks the least because I'm wow. Not, the other two are Americans and they interrupt. Um, I. I I try to interrupt, but I feel like you've been a. I think you've been steamrolling through pretty well. I'm I'm proud of you. I do. Like, it's. Yeah. I think it comes of having been a university lecturer for a while, and you know, you'll <laughs> you'll get up in the morning and go, "Oh, I did this lecture last year. It'll be fine. Where are my notes? Gone." And you just have to wing three hours. Um, yeah, you pick up a certain momentum of 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 speaking. Um, plus, yeah, I have been doing this a ridiculously long time. I started writing and review writing about and reviewing games while i was still at school 
uh, in the mid 80s. I have been doing this a, a very long time. So I can jump from one concept to, to another very easily uh, and just kind of chain stuff. And I think I think actually one of the reasons I was you know I was excited to have you on this show so uh, this book I read yes um, is because because actually that the world of role play games so I started getting into into fiction and writing about a couple of years ago like as in I've always loved fiction but I started saying no actually let's do something mm. let's actually achieve something so I wrote wrote my first novel and then I've done a few other bits. But then I've I've kind of got a bit sidetracked into role play games because actually the writing side of role play games is tremendous fun because you because what you're doing is you're almost seeding little ideas mm. that you know other people will read and be like oh I can do fun stuff with this we we were talking about paranoia so you were involved in one of the versions of paranoia a few yes. years ago and uh, there's there's one adventure I read. Um, Implausible Deniability by Gareth Hanrahan, mm. uh, which is just a great name anyway, isn't it? it yes. Um, but uh, it, it, there's this one bit and it just... So for those who don't know, Paranoia is a, a ridiculous game of a failing space station sort of thing that doesn't know it's failing. Mm. And then you're all the clones inside. Um, and it sets, it sets you up as the, as, the, as the robot on the game's master of, of, of telling the players everyone has to grab a mop. It's absolutely imperative that you grab a mop. You have to grab a mop. And then there are there is one less mop than there is players. Um, and it and it gives you a list of ways you can berate the players. But like for not, why have you not picked a for that's, not having like, a mop. That's di- yeah, exactly. Like that's that's you know, that's that's dissident behaviour there. You mm. know, like why are you you know, why are you or, or like or they can, you know, and so the players start lying and like saying, No, I have got a mop. This pen is actually a mop and like just but yeah, like the idea of those bits of writing where you can create narrative hooks that other people can creatively jump on mm. is is really fun and i think uh, i think those of you who haven't who who are listening to this and like books but haven't read role play games like they are absolutely things you can read as well as as well as play yes the the truth the sad truth about the role playing industry is i think probably about 80% of role playing games that are bought are only ever read they're never played but they're seeding in ideas as you do that whether it's ideas for new rules new structures or just cool stuff that you can drop into your game whether you're creating a game or whether you're running a game but i agree that creativity of putting a role playing game together essentially giving someone else the toolkit to create stories in a world that you've made up is fantastic. Plus, you know, it's true interactive storytelling. The, the act of playing a role-playing game itself is interactive. You're working with a group of players to, to create new stories. But writing the game itself, you're creating the interactive toolkit that other people will then interact with. And I think actually, you know, when you're a kid, you know, like my kids... You know, they like writing stories, like little mm. stories, and, and they like doing play, you know, in, in the garden or whatever. Um, and I think as we become adults, we forget that we're allowed to play. Uh, we've, I think we've got, I, I want to say it's come out, but I don't know if it's come out because our timetable of releasing podcasts is fairly erratic and unplanned. <laughs> but we have a podcast with James DeMarto from the One Shot podcast, um, one of our episodes of What is Roleplay, where he talks about personal play and the idea that it's actually that actually it's not a sad reality of role play games that 80% of them aren't read because if you're reading it 
and enjoying it and that that is play yeah. you know just just like you've been playing with a void and the exeter extension what was it Ex- <laughs> yes exeter event exeter text um, there we go i knew there was an e in it yeah. that's all i could remember <laughs> but like event is what you're pretty say- good yeah, like what what you're saying? Oh yeah, because events got two e's. Yeah, there we go. It should have. I should have been the translator. Extra I'd have turned up French. I'd have extra just one though. Yeah, like, e's are anyway. And interestingly, in Polish Scrabble, this is a sidetrack. Z is worth one point. Wow, which is a very like as in because Z's because they have so many Z's. I'm so, I'm going to make a note of that. Use that in a trivia quiz. That's too good. You, well, but technically English, if you allow hyphens, which I am for the purpose of this piece of pointless knowledge, <laughs> we've got fuzzy wuzzy, which has got four Zs in, mm. and they don't have a four Z word. So we sort of win that if you cheat with a hyphen, which you probably aren't allowed to. But you can't do four Zs in Scrabble because there's only two blanks and one Z. I think, no, but I think in Polish Scrabble, well, yeah, I mean, you couldn't anyway because yes. there's a hyphen. But in Polish Scrabble, if fuzzy wuzzy is the same, <laughs> I imagine if it's one point, they've got more than one Z. <laughs> we have become somewhat distracted at yes. the end here um james where can people find more about you or find you on the internet or those sort of things uh jameswallace.com which i really ought to update fairly soon um my book everybody wins uh is available at all good bookstores online and off and some good game stores as well if you're into board games or even if you're not um i'm i'm very pr- proud of it it's a it's a lovely chunky hardback about the rise of modern board games over the last few decades um it's very it's very pretty um i mean i've only read the first sort of quarter to a third of it so it may go horribly downhill from that point <laughs> so i can i can only firmly recommend the first quarter but that first quarter is fantastic i, I think so. like like a void it it gets better as it goes on um <laughs> i did have a uh uh this pointless anecdote um lunch with an old friend today and he said oh yes i'm, I'm listening to the audiobook version and i'm only only four or five chapters in but really enjoying it and it's i can't wait because in about four chapters he gets name checked and i'm just waiting oh <laughs> that's so good to that um so yeah uh where else at james wallace on twitter uh at james wallace at dice.camp on mastodon um around and about oh and there's a, there's the ludo narrative dissidents podcast uh and we also did a podcast to accompany everybody wins which is also called everybody wins which is just six episodes of me talking to the great and the good of modern board gaming from ian livingston matt leacock reiner knizia uh, peter atkinson who published magic the gathering john cavallick who does dog town loads of fantastic people great conversations mm. um really fun that sounds that sounds fascinating it's been it's been great to talk to you, James. One of the challenges that I have with this podcast is I get really cool people on and I'm like, oh, I want, I want to have you on again because this was fantastic. But then I feel that there's probably other fantastic people in the world as well. But I will have you on to what is roleplay at some point. I would love to. Um, let, let me write some more roleplaying stuff because I've kind of been out of that world for a few years. But uh, I have plans. And once I've actually written something, right. then let's do, let's do some what is roleplay. Um. So this has been a podcast from Beyond Cataclysm. If you've enjoyed it, uh, check out our other podcast uh, and other episodes of this one. 
go online now and find us on iTunes or something like that and give us five <laughs> stars, please, because then a million people will listen to us and I'll be able to retire and something. Uh, but uh, yeah, that'd be great. We actually, as a little little point of niceness for those who care about us, we've gone from about 100 people listening a week to about 1,000 listening a week. And I've got no discernible reason for why that's happened, but that's pretty good pretty on board with that so your five stars can help with that uh and our aim for beyond cataclysm this year is to start to be able to sustainably pay dave dave who is our amazing uh i was gonna say dog's body but that uh, <laughs> that sounds a bit harsh basically what i mean is dave does everything like we we me and james made a made a mistake and couldn't remember something earlier and we both just thanked dave because we know he'll be listening to this in a bit so dave we love you you're amazing yeah, um thanks dave and if you support us if you support us on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash beyond cataclysm and buy awesome things in our store and I'm nearly done. I know I've talked loads. If you go to our website and look up ISBN coffee, um, it's our new project that's going to be launching on Kickstarter soon. James, do you like coffee? I love coffee. So we have the world's first bag of coffee with its own ISBN number coming out. Wow. Soon. Um uh, and the way we get around that, because you can't actually legally put an ISBN number on a bag of coffee. So what we're actually doing is we're doing a companion book called ISBN Coffee. Uh, and then, But then also printing that on the coffee. And we've we've done blind taste testing, so we've got some great coffee. Uh, jump on the pre-launch follow for that on Kickstarter, and you can find that through our website. And that's it. Thank you for listening. Thank you, James. My pleasure. This has been great. See you all in a bit soon, guys. Bye. to This Book I Read hosted by me, C.M. Lowry and starring James Wallace find out more about us, our podcasts opportunities for submission to our projects and more at beyondcataclysm.co.uk